Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us here tonight at the CIC. Uh, we are really excited about our guest tonight, Mary Eberstadt. For those of you who have been in town for a while, you know that there are a few people here in Washington, D.C. who, whenever they choose to put pen to paper, have this knack for making the rest of us throw out everything we thought we knew, having to start all over again. And Mary Eberstadt is one of those people here in town. Uh, we know that uh, when she wrote the book Adam and Eve After the Pill, she gave us answers to questions the rest of us weren't even talking about. She asked us, is food the new sex and is pornography the new tobacco? Uh, then with the loser letters, uh, she put a mirror to the new atheists and showed us and them how truly dystopian their vision of a godless world is. With how the West really lost God, she cast aside that oft-repeated notion that the march of history with a capital H was going to leave religion in the dustbin and then gave us a new way of understanding the symbiotic relationship between religiosity and a strong life and gave us hope that those two things working together might come back into our world today. And now with her latest book, It's Dangerous to Believe, Religious Freedom and Its Enemies, Mary has yet again inflicted a seismic shift in the way we ought to understand our current battle over religious liberty. Contrary to common opinion, this is not a confrontation between the religious and the non-religious. It's not a conversation about freedom for religion versus freedom from religion. This is, at its core, a battle brought on by a newly emerging religion of its own, complete with its own dogmas and saints and sacraments, and the stakes are at an all-time high. So if you're ready, like I am, to hit the reset button and learn why it's dangerous to believe, please help me in welcoming Mary Eberstadt. Thank you. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you, everybody who's here on this beautiful summer evening instead of being outside. Thank you, Father Arnie. Um, some of you may know this story, but <clears throat> I can't be at the CIC without remembering the first time Father Arnie invited me here. I had given a talk at AEI about the loser letters, and Father Arnie heard the talk and invited me to come speak here, and then I realized, well, he's going to hear exactly the same talk. <laughs> So I prefaced my talk at the CIC by saying, Father Arnie heard this verbatim last night, and now he's hearing it again. And Father Arnie raised his hand and said, Oh, no, nowadays everything is being heard for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Which charmed me then and charms me still. So thank you very much for having me. I want to say a, a few words about the backstory to this book, what it was that led me to write the book. Because it's, in retrospect, not accidental-seeming at all, although at the time it did seem like uh, a simple coincidence. Um, an English barrister named Paul Diamond knocked on my door when he was traveling through town several years ago. And Paul Diamond had some stories to tell. His stories were all religious liberty cases, because as it turns out, he's the top barrister in England for handling these kinds of cases. <clears throat> and so he told me about, for example, the delivery driver who, was, uh, who lost his job because he left a crucifix on the dashboard of his van, and about the British Airways employee who uh, was nearly fired for wearing a crucifix with her uniform, even though uh, other forms of religious expression were allowed. And so on. He had all of these, I thought, horror stories, really. And he insisted that it was very important to bring these stories to the attention of people in the United States. So I duly tried to introduce him to a couple of people who I thought could have him over to talk. <coughs> but secretly, I thought, you know, 
these are really bad stories, and I empathize with him, but that's England, right? That's England. They don't have a constitution. They don't have the protections we have. They don't have a First Amendment. So that was my thought then. Fast forward a few years. I, I visited Paul Diamond in England last year, and this time we both had a lot of stories to tell about the CEO of Mozilla, who was fired when it was revealed on social media that he contributed $1,000 on behalf of traditional marriage, uh, about the football coach who was suspended for saying a prayer after a football game, <coughs> about the teacher who was fired in New Jersey for giving a student a Bible, and not even because he was proselytizing, but because the student asked him about a certain arresting phrase that the teacher used and didn't recognize it. The phrase was, the last shall come first and the first shall come last. And the teacher gave him the Bible it was in and was fired. So the point is that one could go on in this vein for a long time. We could actually literally sit here all night exchanging stories about this new, uh, what the Holy Father himself has called, polite persecution. But the deeper point, I think, is that there is civilizational change underlying all of this. Uh, and it's change that is rooted in, I think, a couple of developments, uh, one during the last 50 years and the other during the last 10 years. And we can talk more about both of these. The change of the last 50 years, of course, is the sexual revolution and the invention of the birth control pill. This technological shock, I argue in the book, has resulted in the rise of something unseen before in human history, a secularist quasi-religion based on evolving tenets about the sexual revolution. And I also argue in the book this, this quasi-religion, this, I suppose, Gnostic religion, has its equivalent of sacraments, demonology, martyrology, hagiography, and all kinds of other uncanny parallels with Christianity of 2,000 years. The second development um, of the past 10 years was the new atheism, which crested just about a decade ago. Uh, it was just about a decade ago that uh, Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins et al., were riding this wave of interest in the new atheism. And although some of the argumentation was in earnest, uh, some of it was of a, an ad hominem nature that is still with us, let's put it that way, there was a lot of Christian bashing and Christian baiting going on between the lines of those books and sometimes in those books. And the new atheists weren't sufficiently called out for this, I think. The new atheists bear a burden when it comes to explaining the incivility of current times that they have not been made to answer for. Um, in addition to the new atheism, of course, we then had two terms of a progressive-minded administration, many of whose officials seem to think that if there's a problem in America, traditional Christian has something to do with it. The administration has consistently, for example, redefined freedom of religion in public documents as freedom of worship, which is much more constraining. Freedom of worship sounds like something you could do in your closet, not in the public square. Um, 
also, of course, the president himself has treated tradition-minded Christians to particularly harsh rhetoric. He has called them less than loving. He used that phrase at a prayer breakfast, of all things, a national prayer breakfast. Uh, that's one of many indications also discussed in the book of the kind of double standard that prevails out there when we're talking about traditional Christians and what people can say about them and when we're talking about everybody else and what people can say about that. It's impossible to imagine filling in the blank of less than loving with anything but Christianity. So with one thing and another, it's been a rough 10 years for uh, tradition-minded Christians in particular. But I think the good news here is that by now there is enough ammunition piled up, enough evidence of what secularist progressivism is about, that we can now take that to the public square and hold a mirror up to all of this in the hopes that secularist progressivism is not a monolith, in the hopes that there are people we can reach by reason and persuasion and a civility that is not always extended to our side of the debate. And what I'm hoping to do in this book is use it as a kind of divining rod for figuring out who on the other side is who and which camp they be each belongs in. And to ask uh, with all sincerity that people on the secularist progressive side of things police their ranks, and rein in their runaway inquisitors and live up to the words of Martin Luther King Jr. and Christopher Lash and Harry Truman and plenty of other people in the progressive tradition itself. So that, in a nutshell, is the new effort, and I thank you very much for letting me um, talk about it uh, for one of the first times and in territory that is not only friendly but feels like home. So thank you all, and I look forward to talking to Mitch and to anyone else. Please join me in thanking Mary. <laughs> so the way this will go is I'll sit and ask Mary a couple questions, then we'll open it up for uh, questions from the audience on this. So Mary, let's start with the, the obvious here. Let's start with the title. So what does it mean uh, for it to be dangerous to believe, particularly in Western, in the Western world, in Western Europe and America, when it's really dangerous to believe in the Middle East. So, I mean, how do we make sense of all that? That's a really important point, of course. And there is no moral equivalence between the murder of Middle Eastern Christians, the wholesale slaughter of them, and what's happening in the Western world, obviously. On the other hand, two points. One, these two phenomena are related in very important ways. The sidelining of Western Christians, the stigmatization of Western Christians, the attempt to reduce the power of Western Christians, which seems to be an aim of the ascendant progressivism we see, have all made it harder for Western Christians to help Christians elsewhere in the world. Why? Because resources are finite. There's only so much money and energy to go around. And once again, two terms of a progressive presidency haven't helped matters either. The United States was at the end of a long line 
of actors willing to say that what's happening to Christians in the Middle East is a genocide. The Secretary of State just said this in December, I believe. Prior to that, for years, experts on the Middle East and the Archbishop of Canterbury and uh, the Holy Father himself and many other people in the world implored that this be recognized as a genocide. So once again, if you think that Christianity is a problem in your own country or something at least to be reined in and pulled back and its expression more limited, you are not going to put the plight of Christians in the Middle East at the top of your to-do list. Um, So that's point one. We might have to leave it at point one because without a pencil, (laughs) I'm not sure I can remember point two. (laughs) All right, well, then let's go from kind of the cover to the inside of the book here. If you had to... Oh, I remembered point two. Point two. Sorry. No, this is... um, This only just occurred to me today. Uh, The late Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the senator, wrote an essay that uh, was well known in its time called Defining Deviancy Down. And what he meant was this sort of general collapse of any sense of, you know, gradations of things. Uh, You know, the idea that, well, if it's not murder, it's okay. Or if it's not illegal, it's okay. The question about well, what about the Christians in the Middle East and the fact of their suffering? The, f- the fact that in the West, Christians are not being murdered does not mean that what's happening to them is all right. To suggest that logic chain is an example of defining deviancy down, which I don't mean you were doing, right. <laughs> Mitch. <laughs> you would be the last person I would accuse. Mitch defines deviancy up. <laughs> he finds Thank it you. everywhere. <laughs> I think that's a compliment. (laughs) It means means your conscience is well-developed. But again, the bottom line is the fact that people are only losing their jobs as opposed to their homes or their lives doesn't mean it's okay for them to lose their jobs or to have to stay awake at night worrying about whether if they give their children a Christian education, it's going to redound to their children's um, discredit in the long run and things like that. So, diving into the book, probably the most common phrase used in the book, if you had to do a word hunt, is witch hunt. And a secularist witch hunt, that's a little bit of an oxymoron because the witch hunt were done by the Puritans. So what do you mean when you say there's a secularist witch hunt going on, um, especially against religious believers, and a great little phrase you use, the visible people living in the visible stories around the world. So what does it mean to have this secularist witch hunt going on? Well, I mean, first of all, we know this. We know that from time to time, there are collective outbreaks of panic in societies. Uh, Arguably, the witch craze uh, in Europe that preceded, went on for 400 years and preceded Salem, Massachusetts, um, is an example of that. Uh, Another example that that liberals are very fond of citing, um, people on the liberal end of things, is the Red Scare um, in the 1950s in the United States when people were, some people, were wrongly accused (coughs) of being communists. I mean, some people were not. Some people actually were communists. And Whitaker Chambers' book, Witness, is the great compendium of who was who in that. Um, But 
Clearly, a certain irrationalism attended the, the hunt for communists. Um, similarly, in the 1980s, there were these cases, most of you weren't born yet, but there still were these cases where, uh, in a, in a, again, in a moment of collective panic, there was a sort of nationwide panic over daycare and ritual sexual abuse of children. And several people actually went to jail and had to be exonerated. And the evidence on which they were convicted was not sort of standard empirical evidence. Uh, evidence was admitted that wouldn't have been admitted in any other context. And it took a couple of Pulitzer Prize winning books and other exposés to set that right. Which is to say, we're human beings and we are always susceptible to collective moral panic sort of thinking. Well, I argue that this is what we are seeing now, only we're seeing it in a way that wasn't easy to imagine before this. We're seeing a secularist moral panic over the presence of religion in the public square. That's why I call the secularist progressives neo-Puritans, because the key thing about the Puritans was that they wanted to hang anybody who walked into their midst. I mean, they didn't tolerate difference. It took Thomas Jefferson, really, to sort out freedom of religion and the importance of securing it for everybody. The Puritans were not of that mind. And it really took a, a collective reawakening to get them out of the witch hunt mode. Um, I think the parallels between Salem and our own time are positively eerie. Again, nobody's being hanged or uh, yet. Um, <laughs> drowned, pressed, etc. But here are just a few similarities to consider. In Salem, what convicted witches uh, was something known as spectral evidence. That is, evidence that was considered to be supernatural in nature. Now again, under English law, spectral evidence wouldn't ordinarily be allowed in a civil case or a criminal case, but for the case of the witches, they made an exception and they had this whole category of evidence that was not empirically verifiable. I think the parallel we see to this is that today, religious believers are called uh, haters and bigots and homophobes and transphobes with no evidence that anybody hates anybody at all. There's a different standard of evidence for that kind of name calling. It's not really evidence. It's the equivalent of spectral evidence. That is evidence that would not be allowed anywhere else. If, if I see, say, a hundred tweets uh, that are manifestly racist in nature, I could feel comfortable saying someone was racist. But when you don't see hatred coming from millions and millions of American Christians who are being denounced as haters and bigots anyway, what's your standard of evidence? So that, I think, is something that, that ties in today's inquisitors to yesterday's inquisitors. So let's talk a little bit more about that double standard. Um, you talked about how the, the crucifix test or um, how the standard being applied specifically to Christians is not the same across religions. I'm thinking now of the response to Orlando and how that has kind of uh, unveiled itself over the last couple weeks. I mean, how does that kind of help us understand this gui the guideposts for this new intolerance? That is a perfect example of how unmoored from reason 
events have become. Because manifestly, the man who committed these horrible murders was not a Christian. He was an anti-Christian. You couldn't get 180 degrees different from reality than the reaction that said, well, somehow the Christians are responsible for this. But it wasn't the first time, really. I mean, the, the new atheists, again, they started this <laughs> because after 9-11, which, again, manifestly was not carried out by Christians but by anti-Christians of a certain kind, nevertheless, the new atheists saw an opening there to say, well, the problem is we all have our religious fanatics, and we in the United States have our own religious fanatics, and those are the followers of Jesus Christ, mainly but not only in the Bible Belt. Um, this, again, this was an unsustainable chain of logic, but it stuck, just as in some quarters uh, the Orlando shooting stuck home the idea that somehow Christians had something to do with this. So let's change gears a little bit. We're in a Catholic bookstore here, and the book is very much in the spirit of Pope Francis talking a lot about the poor. You talk a lot about how these attacks on the churches at the end of the day hurt the poor the most. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. When I said a few minutes ago that I think over the past 10 years, the good news is there is so much ammunition to use that we can turn things around with it. This is particularly something um, that I have in mind. So let's just forget everything we know and just think about what it would take to get you up in the morning by thinking, I'm going to close somebody's charity. Today, I'm going to make life difficult for an adoption agency. I'm going to sue the U.S. bishops at the southern border of the United States because their refugee resettlement doesn't include contraception and abortion. Uh, here's another one. I'm going to sue pregnancy centers, <clears throat> places where women can go and get medical tests and assistance and diapers and, you know, depending on the place, help. These centers are being sued all over because they don't provide abortion and contraception. I mean, what does your mindset have to be if shutting down other people's good works is your idea of a purpose in life? Progressivism's record in this regard is reprehensible. Again, because resources are limited. And I think the problem is that, you know, and it's a problem we all share, people on the traditionalist side are so used to being on defense that it's harder to see opportunities when they're right under our noses. But if you want to talk to your secular friends, the next time you're put on the spot about being a hater or a bigot or uh, whatever, fill in the blank, I think this is a great place to start. What about the fact that trying to help poor people is getting harder and harder? And what about the fact that it's even more important because religious believers give a lot more to charity than do non-religious people? And I'm not saying that to knock secular people. It's just a, a well-established fact of social science. Is it really okay to go around uh, trying to take accreditation away from Protestant colleges? 
There have been a couple of trial runs at this. King's College in New York, Gordon College in Massachusetts, which is regarded as a flagship evangelical school. Evangelicals know it as the, the Harvard of the evangelical world. And it was just in a fight for its life over the issue of accreditation and whether it could be treated as co-equal with a secular college. These kind of sorties are going on and are going to get a lot worse. And again, to the point, like, who's picking up the slack here? Who is taking care of those kids who are now waiting years for adoption instead of months because all the Catholic adoption agencies are fighting for their lives when they haven't shot already, right? Who is benefiting here and who is being hurt here? And I think it's irrefutable that who's being hurt are the people who can least afford it, the people who are most vulnerable. Progressivism has no moral high ground in this matter. And I think it's past time to point that out and try to make that stick. So my last question for you, um, this is pretty grim. I mean, are there any signs of hope, for, especially for believers? Is there any signs that this new intolerance is not going to be a permanent fixture in our lives, in our generation, in the next couple generations? And what do we have to, to hope for, to work for? I think what, what we need to do and hope for is, well, first of all, we need to believe as Catholics, as Christians, in the reason we were given, because we believe we were all given reason, which is to say there's no giving up on the possibility of persuading other people, right? I mean, if we thought we couldn't persuade people, there would be no conversion, <laughs> um, religious or otherwise. And of course, that's not what we believe. It's what the other side believes. I mean, they're the, you know, born that way side. They're the ones who believe in and worship this capital H history according to which what human beings do doesn't matter because it's all the great unfolding of some kind of anti-providence. Um, that to me is a really hopeless view. Um, when your anthropology looks like that, you've got nothing to hold on to. Our situation is completely different. I mean, first of all, there's the fact that human beings are theotropic. They lean toward God. It's very rare. What's happening in the modern world is very rare to have whole societies where religion doesn't play much of a role. That's the outlier. That's the anomaly, right? Generally speaking, and independent of education and social class, people lean toward God. Um, so that's to say that secularism can't get rid of religion. What secularists have to realize is that they've got to stop being neo-Puritans and start being Jeffersonians in this matter. So yeah, I think there's a lot of room for hope, but it has to start in persuasion. It has to start in trying to be a, a model of civility in a time when a lot of people on the other side are the opposite. But I think we can be confident that the moral right is on our side. The examples of the charities are particularly important in this regard, but, but so are other examples. So is the fact that we aren't the ones running around calling people bigots and haters and trying to stigmatize their children and uh, shut down other people's homeschooling and doing these kind of um, ideologically driven things that are indefensible when you hold them up to the light. Let's go ahead and open it up for questions from the audience. Go ahead here. 
kind of the rise of Oprah Winfrey style spirituality, what some have called moral therapeutic theism. And I'm wondering if you think the decline of traditional beliefs that have like public displays of religion, um, has that made it easier for the government to move in and force beliefs out of public sphere? Yeah, great question. As a political matter, I think what has made government move in are well, two things. One, the opening that has been provided by a series of Supreme Court decisions over decades that have all gone the way that religious traditionalists wouldn't want them to go. I mean, on contraception, on obscenity, and I should say not just religious traditionalists, but constitutionalists and originalists as well. But obscenity, uh, you know, all, all the sort of sex revolution issues up to and including Obergefell. Um, the fact that they've gone the way they have has made it uh, easier, I wouldn't say inevitable, but easier for, say, the Obama administration to force the transgender thing through by edict, essentially, um, because they have all these decisions that they can uh, point to. And then the other thing that has made the state move in is the fracturing of the family, because without that, the state wouldn't have to be acting as father in so many situations. And it's, you know, it's a vicious cycle, because on the one hand, the bankrolling of the fractured family is done by the state, but on the other hand, the reason the state steps in is because of the fracturing of the family. So that, that dynamic is really important uh, behind the scenes, I think. Over here. <laughs> we all have that problem. <laughs> um, part of the point I make in the book is that people who call themselves progressives have forgotten some of progressivism's roots. So here's an example. What is defensible about trying to shut down homeschooling or take away from parents who might live in bad neighborhoods or don't have a lot of money uh, the right to educate their children as they see fit? This, again, is a campaign where the clear double standard applies. Nobody is trying to bother secular homeschooling, and I'm sure there is such a thing. But they're going after Christian homeschooling. Why is it okay to have one standard for Christians and another standard for everybody else? Because I bet if you were doing a curriculum at the kitchen table that included you know, Christopher Hitchens and Philip Pullman and... Uh, other progressive notables, modern progressive notables, the ACLU would not have a problem with this. The National Education Association would not have a problem with this. No one would be writing scholarly articles saying that it might be unconstitutional to homeschool your children. There's a clear double standard. And I, I mean, it applies in so many ways. But that the homeschooling example is just another one. And I have no dog in this fight because we were far too lazy to homeschool our children. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the double standard is that clear that even without a, a, a stake in that thing, it can be seen.
level. Um, but then a part of your argument seems to be that there is this will to disbelieve, and I know you talked about this in some of your other works, and that seems so powerful because it's, it's already like irrational to assume that women are empowered by the sexual revolution. The statistics, as we, we you know, we talked about, and um, show that that's just not the case. So today with the witch hunts, like it seems like we want to reach people on this level of reason and logic, but it seems like even the rules of reason, reason, the rules of philosophy have failed us. So how do we, it's almost like we present the facts. It doesn't seem to matter because there's like yeah. an emotional, spiritual attachment to these things that is like propelling the whole movement. And I wonder if it needs to be more right brain. And at the same time, I know there needs to be more education in the left brain. Like the rules of like logic and philosophy need to be upheld. So I'm just wondering how. Yeah, no, it's a great question because it is a moment of irrationalism and lots of it. I mean, I think to speak strategically, uh, there are a certain number of things to go after here. One thing is the whole born that way idea. And what I mean by that is secularist progressivism acts like a religion in this way. When people get off their reservation, right? when, when they see what they think of as apostasy, they go after it tooth and nail because they have everything invested in thinking you're born some way, and I'm not just speaking about homosexuality here at all, um, far from it. They have a vested interest in thinking if you've ever been on our side of the divide over the sexual revolution, if you've ever had an abortion, if you ever had premarital sex, if you ever did all of these things, any of these things, you're ours, right? You're ours. You can never go over to that other side. That has to change, see? Because obviously they think apostasy is a two-way street. When someone who was raised a religious Mormon uh, comes out with a tell-all, you know, uh, horror biography about how awful that was, zoom to the top of the New York Times bestseller list goes that. That is to say... They do believe you can convert the other way. They do think you can come over to their side. What they don't want is for anybody from their side to come over to this side. Uh, example, um, even, if, even people off the reservation in the littlest way, Andrew Sullivan, who will go down in history as probably the most important voice in favor of same-sex marriage, Andrew Sullivan is regarded as retrograde by his own side today uh, for two reasons. One, because he refuses to put religious liberty in skeptical quotes the way a lot of other people do now. Uh, and two, because he has apparently transgressed evolving doctrine about transsexualism in some way. I mean, the point is, they have to be persuaded that when people leave their side, it's for authentic reasons. They have to be, if not persuaded, forced to acknowledge <laughs> that this is how they should think. Because I think that's a huge stumbling block to a conversation. And again, there's a double standard there. So that, that is something that I think it's important to go after. Do you think people can change their minds or not? Do you think they can change their lives or not? Because when they change their lives in your direction, you're all happy about that, and you just assume that that's uh, how people were born. Yeah. Right. Right. I was kind of piggybacking on my question. Um, so, in addition, so 
So it's partly a question about the Benedict option and whether people should withdraw or to what extent they should withdraw. It's, it's broader it, than the Benedict option. I'm, I'm trying to connect um, how your vision for how we, we live as practicing faithful Catholics uh, in the world um, and how we sort of defend our right to do that um, with internal church thinking Mm -hmm. um, is that an option you endorse? Is there, are there different options mm -hmm. um, touching on sort of the way we live as Christians? Yeah, yeah it, a lot of that is, uh, what did our president say? Not my pay grade. <laughs> Over my Above your pay grade. grade, yeah. But I mean to say respectfully that that's for, that's for our religious leaders to to answer and help with. I think it's different for different people, but for those of us who are called to engage with the secular world, we can't ever write off the possibility that we're converting people at the same time. And that to me is what is wrong with the idea of everybody just getting the hell out of there, is everybody can't. I mean, first of all, our children grow up in this culture and uh, thanks to the internet, they know something about it no matter where we try to hide them. Um, but also, we can't, I think we should, we shouldn't feel so embattled that we give up on the possibility of enlarging and strengthening ourselves through conversion. We, we shouldn't give up on the human heart. Um, and we also should take confidence from the fact that natural law is on our side and the way people live now, not just because of the sexual revolution, but the, the atomized, unfamiliar way that people live is making a lot of people miserable. So. Those things, too, bring people toward us. And I think it's important not to give up on that. Mary, could you switch this a moment to the whole the role of wit and the critics who sort of write a lot? For example, the Luther letters, her plays, which are coming out, is wonderfully played this fall. Plays for that, that kind of holding up a mirror which sort of shows <coughs> Um, I think 
ridicule is fine as long as it's not personal, as long as it's about ideas. And I will share this in case this is useful to anybody. I learned this a long time ago from Irving Kristol, who was a great writer and a mentor of mine, an essayist of, uh, essayist of world-class proportions. And one time I had to respond to a bunch of criticism, a bunch of letters had been written in response to some piece of mine, and it was the first time I had to do this, and I asked him for advice, and he said, don't mention people by name, just talk about the ideas. And I have tried to follow this. In the loser letters, I named the new atheists, but only as a group, you know, because they were, um, they, they were of the view anyway that no publicity is bad publicity. <laughs> but, but in general, I think that's good advice. If you want to know what separates you from the other side, it's that they will go after people personally, whereas we, at our best anyway, we're trying to go after ideas. Question over here in the corner. Yes, it's completely that issue. The, the difference is that they, the other side has yet to acknowledge what that Supreme Court decision prophetically acknowledged, which is we have witnessed the rise of a rival religion. Because, again, people are theotropic. People are going to believe. The new atheists sort of succeeded in establishing that this was all about faith versus non-faith, but it's not. It's about rival faiths. It's about which faith do you have? The faith in 2,000 years of teaching um, called Christianity, or faith in the much newer, still evolving, volatile uh, church of the sexual revolution? And I think it does come down to that. So yeah, they think we're heretics. Here, go ahead. You wanted to raise a question about the reassured thought that they're not killing us. Told you I was an optimist. Yeah. <laughs> well, as, as you pointed out, a lot of these cases uh, have involved uh, telling people they don't have a right to refuse to get involved in abortion. Uh, that's been a, an issue in the uh, contraceptive mandate. Probably unconstitutional, and uh, his administration is re 
reinterpreted the law so it doesn't apply to any of the cases that you've actually written in the reply brief. So I guess my question is, if they're just killing me, I go to heaven. I might even be a martyr, and that's like cool when I go to heaven. <laughs> uh, if they suborn Christians into being involved in what they believe to be the unjust killing of others, is that better or is that worse? Just killing your opponents is one thing, making them apostatize to them the soul. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's even more insidious. There's a lot of insidiousness going around. That's a great example. How far will people who want to be believing Christians go to delude themselves that what they're doing is somehow okay or justified by the ends? Or, uh, in other words, that's the exact question, is right? Cooperation with evil and how much more of it we will see thanks to this anti-Christian aggression? And I think the answer is lots. So I guess what we're talking about is soft martyrdom as opposed to hard martyrdom, um, polite martyrdom to use the, the Holy Father's term. Um, I think what's also insidious and what worries me even more than that is uh, how people are going to pass on or not pass on the faith to their children because I think parents feel a great deal of pressure. Children responding to a secular environment feel a great deal of pressure to explain themselves at an age when they can't. I mean, I guess the answer to all of that is way better catechesis from a very young age and understanding that kids today have to fight for this stuff in a way that their parents and grandparents couldn't imagine. There's a good side to that. It means raising up a generation of uh, uh, precocious apologists. <laughs> Right? So we need two things. We need precocious apologists, and then when they finally take away tax exemption, we're going to need a lot of philanthropists to make our schools run because that's what it's going to take. But I think some very far-thinking people have already yeah. figured that out. <laughs> yeah, one more question here. How, on, on kind of a political scale, how are we supposed to be able to push back against the secular progressives when even on, say, the political right, we have secularism itself, thinking mainly right now, thinking of Johnson's on the ticket, um, libertarians running, have no concept of sort of an appropriate pluralistic religious liberty. Um, looking at the, the kind of backlash against Matthew Schmitz when he wrote, the, um, the editor of First Things, when he wrote a, a piece basically advocating for a ban on pornography in the Washington Post, um, and myself at, a, at an event defending that uh, kind of idea, um, had several prominent libertarian writers, for instance, uh, say that no real Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm. I'm aware of that. I read Matthew's piece, and I saw some of the <clears throat> attendant controversy. And all I can say is, of all the things one writes about, if one writes about pornography, it just brings out whatever is lurking in the worst places. So, I think the hope there, and this again is just a strategic thought, but. Of course, it helps enormously to have men talk about this. The other hope is that there can be some rebuilding of the feminist traditionalist coalition on this. 
I don't think it's impossible. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the 1980s, you know, there were these leading feminists, Catherine McKinnon, Andrea Dworkin, and others who uh, stood shoulder to shoulder with religious people in this matter. They said pornography is bad for women and, you know, bad for humanity. And then somehow all of feminism went libertarian instead. I, I think it was, again, a technological shock, the shock of Internet pornography, which, you know, so exponentially... Um, was more of the same and then way more of the same. Uh, and we're still trying to deal with all of that. But I think it's possible that we could peel off some feminists here and there to come back to the idea that this is, a, this is an issue where we can have some coalitions. This is a place where we can have some consensus. Um, every once in a while, one of them gets off the reservation. Like there's a board member of now who is an outspoken... Um, uh, critic of uh, what do you call that? Exploitation, taking eggs and you know messing with them, and um, I'm, I'm not thinking of, what's the word I want for that. Mm -hmm. What Jennifer Law always talks about. Surrogacy. Thank you, surrogacy. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, you know, so she's willing to do that. She's willing to make common cause with uh, Jennifer Law, who's one of the most outspoken um, critics of surrogacy, and on the right, as it were. Um, I think we can do more of that, too. We just, we just need to build on the idea that we can still persuade people and be proactive and not reactive to the extent possible. Yeah, I think uh, one of the ways we need to lead more uh, Catholics or maybe Protestants as well need to be better organized for women. They see some of these articles of people speaking out or trying to take action against... Uh, Christianity against Christians that can run these neighborhoods, uh, you know, almost call it up a committee and say, hey, listen, we're going we're gonna to fight this. And it's not going to be, not just going to take it sitting down like it seems uh, a lot of times has occurred in the past. It just seems kind of passive. And so are there any organizations, any Catholic organizations that are you know, taking a proactive stance and trying to uh, really you know, fight this? Well, <laughs> you're in one. You're in one. <laughs> in a sense of having, say, organized letter writing campaigns to the, uh, you know, the congressmen and senators and telephone campaigns. That's a great idea. I mean, I, I'm not an activist that way. Maybe other people here would know more about the, the outfits that have been created specifically to respond on a dime that way. Um, Catholic vote? Yeah, Catholic vote would be one, especially on those sorts of issues. Catholic voices for young people, right? Um, women speak for women themselves. Women speak for completely. themselves. I just have to put in a plug for the Catholic conferences. Of, you know, I live in Virginia, Virginia Catholic Conference and Maryland Catholic Conference. They would... Conference of Bishops? Yes, they're, I mean, for the bishops of those states. So, so you you can be be part of the advocacy network. So, if there is an issue that involves religious liberty, you know, then you can join the advocacy network and send letters to your representatives. We don't seem to publish letters very much, at least not Virginia. <laughs> I'll give you the information. <laughs> <laughs> 
Please join me in thanking Mary. Oh, thank you. Thank you.